Good morning, good morning, good morning, Docs at Church. You can go ahead and take a seat. Um, I love that sound so much. Hey, well, my name is Rudy. Uh, I get to be here on staff with Doxa, and we're going to be hopping back into our Jonah series. This morning, if you have a Bible, you can head over to Jonah chapter 1. If it's your first week or your first week in a while, great news. It's just the second message of the series, not a whole ton for you to catch up on. Uh, If it's your first week uh, with us in this series as well, it's also technically mine because last weekend I was actually with our Salt Company students, our college ministry, at our fall retreat. It was a sweet time. I just want (laughs) to... Shane. (laughs) He's got a mustache. Um, So... I, so what I, I, I loved that, that weekend, and I want to say thank you to so many of you who came to me and have let me know that you were praying for us and for our time while we were out there last weekend. Uh, it's been, been really sweet to see what the Lord's been doing in Salt Company this semester. Uh, but let me recap uh, Jonah and where we've gone in the first three verses uh, to quote the philosopher Larry the Cucumber, I think. Um, Jonah was a prophet— and he never really got it. Um, that, I, think, I think that's it. I don't know. I didn't do a Juana's, guys. I'm not really. Okay. Anyways, um, the, the, uh, the, the beauty of this story in Jonah is that it is a narrative, uh, which is to say in a lot of the minor prophets, the movement is really through the words and what the prophet is saying. And, and what's beautiful about Jonah is we, we get it through what Jonah is saying and the interactions and the words, but we also see what's going on in our story as we catch up on Jonah running from God through what he does and through what happens around him. So we're, we're going to look into the narrative of this. Uh, the original intent of this passage moves through a narrative, and it has enduring instruction for us today. So we're just going to hop right into the story. Three lenses we're looking through this morning. We'll look at the story uh, first with the sailors, and then kind of about halfway, a third of the way through, we'll flip to Jonah. And then at the very end, as best we can, we'll flip to this story from the viewpoint of, of God. And what we're ultimately seeing, note takers, this is for you, top of the page, what we're ultimately seeing is this, there, there is mercy in the storm. Where we're going this morning, there's mercy in the storm. I hope that was enough time to get to Jonah chapter 1. If the word doesn't do the work, the work won't get done. Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 reads as such, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up and Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. All right, we're starting with the sailors. First, two things that we know about the sailors. Number one, uh, these were incredibly skilled men. They, they, they know what they're doing. We're not just rolling up on a couple people with a little rinky-dink boat that's like, yeah, sure, Jonah, give us 20 bucks and we'll get you across the Mediterranean. See, that's not what's happening here at, at all. This, this trip from Joppa to Tarshish that they're on was not a short one. It was all the way across the Mediterranean. This is a group of men who are skilled in sailing enough not just to make a voyage, but to bring cargo and to make people pay to come and go with them. There's a fare that Jonah paid. This route had different stops on it, and these are just skilled professionals. And what started out as normal, as this is normal trip from Joppa to Tarshish, very quickly becomes anything but. You have to see this from the rip. This is no normal storm that they're stepping into. These were not the kind of guys that would look out at the Mediterranean, see a storm coming in, and say, oh, I bet we can beat that. 
right? That's too much of, of a risk. That's not how they think. Suzanne Daly writes and says this about these, these sailors in the ships. The merchant ships that sailed around the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, were links that joined cultures through trade. Egyptians sold cotton to the trade ships, then bought it back after it had been dyed purple in Sidon. Uh, Israelites, known for their wines, obtained spices from Ethiopia. The ship owners and subsequently the crews made their living from this trade. A ship going to Tarshish would be filled with the treasures of the nations clustered around the Great Sea. Sailors would be gone for months at a time. They'd be giving up of their muscles in exchange for a share of the profits and a little bit of adventure. The goods in the holds of the ship represented their lives. These are professional sailors, moving people and cargo. They are business people trying to keep their money right and make decisions that align with that. They started this trip because they thought they could make this trip. And then God hurls a storm onto them. It's sudden. It's like an attack. It's violent. And in this sudden violent storm, we see a second thing to be true of our sailors. They are skilled individuals. They're skilled at their craft, but they're also religious people. The cultures were joined together through their journeys, so the sailors' understanding of different deities were joined together as well. They themselves would have been polytheistic, but they were also exposed to a multitude of other polytheistic cultures. They experienced what Tara Isabella Burton calls the bundling of religion, pulling something from a practice over here and something over here and something from over here and something from this culture and that religion and that thing and making their own kind of bespoke religious practice. And the fear that they experience in this storm actually pulls all of this and presses all of this out of them. These men are afraid And so each one calls out to their own God. Now, the word here used for their own God is Elohim, which is like a general title for a deity or or for a a set of deities. It could be plural as well. I need you to hold on to that for, for a little bit later. These sailors play God roulette. They're desperately calling out to whoever they think can help them as they, check this, hurl cargo overboard. You see both of these things happening at the same time. They toss the wine overboard while they pray to a sky god. They, they, they toss the cotton overboard while they pray to a storm god. They toss the spices overboard while praying to a sea god. On and on and on. In, in reality, this practice is self-protective. Less weight, less cargo means less danger. But it's actually also this form of sacrifice. They're playing an if-then. Okay, if the sky god's listening to me, here's our cotton. Just don't let us die. If, the, if, if you're listening, if you're listening, if you're listening, they're doing anything to try to get the attention of someone to spare their lives. In these quick couple of verses, we learn something really important about these sailors, and it's that these moments of desperation reveal what they're truly dependent on. In the same way that moments of desperation in our lives have a tendency to put a pressure on us and reveal what we are truly dependent on. Superstitions are put on display. You play the if-then game for whoever might listen. Maybe that was you, maybe that is you. Their desperate reaction gives us a question to consider. Is what we're depending on able to show us mercy? Is what you're depending on able to show you mercy? Across the Bible, this idea of mercy is understood as a deliverance from judgment. Is what you depend on able to deliver you? Is it able to show you mercy? And in the case of our sailors, the answer is no. 
They call out in desperation. They call out in dependence. They call out for deliverance. They hurl their treasures into the ocean, trying to get the attention of some deity, something to help them, and nothing happens. The storm does not relent. So they rack their brains on what to do so as to not give in to the intrusive thoughts of imminent death in the Mediterranean monsoon. And in the chaos, the captain has a moment of clarity. Hey, where'd that one guy go? Remember the guy that hopped on? We all know each other. Where'd that guy go? Didn't he say he was like running from God? Maybe we should go talk to, talk to him. Um, and so that's exactly what happens. And we flip from the sailors to the perspective of Jonah. See, Jonah gets on the boat and he goes straight down, which is a continuation of the constant inversion of the word of the Lord that came to him in verse 2 of this first chapter. God says, get up, and instead Jonah goes down to Joppa and then goes down into the ship. God says, Nineveh, Jonah says, Tarshish. God says, preach, and Jonah goes to sleep. And we find him in the inner part of this ship, fast asleep. Um... The word here in the original language for sleep is like as severe of a word. It's like hilarious. It's as severe of a word as you could use. A translation could be that he was dead asleep, right? It it seems kind of odd, right? A storm is hurled at a ship, and we find Jonah dead asleep. Why is that? A couple reasons it could be. Um, Some people think that Jonah is experiencing a false peace. But Jonah walks onto the boat, and as he feels the wood boards creak beneath his feet as he gets onto the ship, there's this sense in Jonah's mind thinking, I did it. I escaped God. I've fled from the presence of God. She knows it's impossible, but there's this false sense of, I've gotten this far. I'm on the boat. And so he goes straight down, and in his false peace, he lies down and falls asleep. Maybe. I think it's maybe a combination of that and this, that Jonah is experiencing complete and utter exhaustion. I think Jonah is exhausted, and I think he's exhausted because disobedience is exhausting. Disobedience is debilitating. Just think about everything Jonah had to do to get in his mind to get to this moment. God has spoken to me. His word has clearly come to me. I don't want to do it, so I'll go down to Joppa. Oh, I went down to Joppa. Oh, I found a boat. Oh, I found a boat. Oh, I'll pay the fare. Oh, I pay the, bo- the fare. I'll get on the boat. Oh, I get on the boat. I'll go lie down. And in that moment of lying down, there's this overwhelming exhaustion that flows, floods Jonah. There's the physical exhaustion of the travel, but there's also the emotional exhaustion of the internal conflict he's experiencing while the prophet of God is trying to run from God. There's a mental exhaustion trying, that he's doing, trying to do backflips in his brain to justify this disobedience. There's this spiritual exhaustion that takes a toll on his soul as he flees from the ever-present and almighty God. Jonah is experiencing the reality that disobedience to God is debilitating. It is exhausting. And Jonah still, though, keeps running. And as soon as he stops running, he falls dead asleep in this disobedient exhaustion. His exhaustion gives him what feels like an escape. If I just fall asleep, I don't have to deal with my disobedience. If I just drink that, if I just take that, if I just do that, if I just numb out for a little bit, I don't have to deal with everything that my actions are actually causing me to feel. There's a running, an attempt to try to escape the discomfort of obedience, and yet it debilitates all the more as he doubles down on it. And there is actually no escape from his disobedience. It's just debilitating exhaustion. 
So we find Jonah asleep in false peace and deadening exhaustion, and he wakes up to chaos. The storm within him put him to sleep, and he wakes up to a storm around him. Jonah's eyes open up in a dark, loud space, shaken awake by a yelling captain. I, that he gets shaken in my head. doesn't say that, but in my head, shaken awake by a yelling captain. And it's the words of this captain that are heard in the space between wakefulness and sleep that would have sent a shiver down the spine of Jonah. Look at verse 6. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Maybe your Bible says, Get up. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. That word, arise and get up, would have terrified Jonah. Because he would have immediately had a flashback to the word of the Lord that he heard in verse 2. When he heard God himself say, arise, get up. And in a moment, that false peace shatters. And he's all the more exhausted because he realizes that he has gotten away with nothing. It all comes rushing and flooding back. It's like when you thought you got away with egging the house in the other neighborhood and the cops show up at your front door, which is totally a made-up story. The false peace shatters. The exhaustion settles deeper into his bones, the debilitation of his disobedience strikes his heart and mind again. Jonah would have instantly become aware, I haven't gotten away with anything. And the captain, <laughs> the captain says, get up and call to your God. I just, the Bible is so good. Um, the sailors are doing everything that Jonah's supposed to be doing. While Jonah is trying to avoid the reality of the storm within him by sleeping, he wakes up to a storm around him while the sailors are praying and sacrifice to try to get somebody to end the storm. Jonah's trying to flee from God. The sailors are trying to figure out which God to appease. Jonah has the answer, but he's down alone, below, and asleep. They want a God to consider them. Jonah wants God to leave him alone. And then, please don't miss this irony, Jonah hears the captain ask him to pray to the God that he's actively running away from. Hey, pray to your God. You mean the one I'm trying to escape? It's in this moment that we're faced with a question. Will God show mercy to the person who is actively running away from him? Is God going to show mercy to Jonah? The story continues. A longer section here, verse 7. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you because I know it is because of me. It is because of me. It is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. All right, we are building to the climax of the story. 
Jonah comes up and he sees them throwing lots and he is again confronted with the knowledge that he is going to get found out. Lots were a tool of discernment. They're seen in the New and the Old Testament. There are two sets of stones with like a dark side, a white side. Different uh, combinations meant different different things. They're seen in the Bible up until Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So for them, throwing these rocks was common. For us, the Spirit of God is better than tossing two rocks. For that, I'm grateful. Moving on. Jonah knows that he's done because he would have been aware of Solomon's wisdom from Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So unsurprisingly, the lot reveals that it's going to be Jonah He's asked four questions. Who's to blame? What's your business? Where are you from? What are your country and your people? And Jonah responds, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. The idea of heaven, we kind of think of that as where God dwells. Another way of understanding that would have been just like the sky. So the God of the sky and the sea and the dry land. (laughs) Jonah's response seems like mostly true, right? He is a Hebrew. But we've got to ask, like, does Jonah fear the Lord? He's been running from him. He certainly hasn't been living like he does. He's talking a big game here, but his life isn't really showing what he's saying. I do think in this moment that he's realizing that he's not going to get away with running. Any sense, any thought that he thought that maybe I'm going to get away with this is gone. God is the God of the sea, land, and sky. There's nowhere Jonah can go to get away from him. He's also realizing something else on the deck of the ship. I think as he looks around at these men, he is realizing that his disobedience has consequences, not just on himself, but on these strangers around him. They are suffering because of his choices. Sometimes this is what disobedience does. I've heard people say something like trying to excuse their sin or whatever's going on in their life. And I've I've said this in the past as well, foolishly. I'm not hurting anybody. But what if you are? What if the thing you do in secret actually deeply affects the people who are around you? Maybe they don't confront you about it because they don't know how to. Or they have confronted you about it and you've resisted them, so they're just enduring a life of pain. What if your hidden sin is leading to the consequences on the lives of people around you who are strangers or perhaps people that you love? What if being found out later will actually lead to more pain in the long term than just confessing it now? One thing I have learned is that you may feel like your sin is secret, but secret sin is never silent. The people around you feel the residual consequences of it now. And if not now, then one day they will. The storm is not just harming Jonah. It's harming those who are around him. So Jonah jumps to a quick fix solution. Verse 12, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Okay. (laughs) Jonah's been found out. And he's still running from God, which you ju- it makes no sense for the prophet to run from God. Psalm 139, well, where can I go to hide from your presence? Where can I go to, to flee from your spirit? If I am in the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, which would have actually created like this mental picture of this primordial sea for them. Like you are, are there. Jonah's saying there's nowhere that I can go to get away from you. Jonah is not operating in a rational and logical way because he is operating out of an unchecked panic and emotion. The resounding thought in Jonah's mind is this unholy vow that he has made with himself and with God. And it is as clear as it is destructive. Jonah is determined, I will not go to Nineveh. There's nothing you can do to make me. 
I won't do it. So throw me into the sea. Throw me into the water. Let's just get this done and over with. It is unchecked. It's out of control. And it's important to note that God never tells him to do that. There's no indication in the text that God tells Jonah to do that. Jonah makes this decision on his own. That's how deeply entrenched this is. He's like, I will not go. And here's what's wild to me. The sailors, in the chaos of the storm, and as a consequence of Jonah's disobedience, they refused to throw him in at first. You think they'd be like, okay, we threw off all our treasures. Just makes sense, homie. You're next. First on, last on, first off. Like, just like, get in it. It makes sense that it would do that, but they refuse to. Because even these pagan sailors have a high value on the life of a human being. And just because he's brought difficulty, he is worth more to them than simply throwing him away. So look at this. They row harder. They don't want to do this, but the storm holds them fast. So look at what they do. As the story comes to a close, verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay on us, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Their efforts to outrun the storm prove as effective as Jonah's efforts to outrun God, which is to say, they can't do it. So they say, oh, Lord. Okay, a little bit ago, told you, verse 6, hold on to it, that the first time they cried out, they're like, we're going to cry out to the Elohim, to, this, to these gods, to just whatever generic deity will listen. But here, when they say Lord, they're saying something entirely different. They are using God's proper name, Jehovah. They are not praying to a pantheon of polytheistic pagan deities. They are praying to the one true God, God Almighty, maker of the heavens and the waters and the lands. They ask for forgiveness before throwing him in. And again, seemingly, they have this better disposition than Jonah for the entire ordeal by just going to the, 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 to the Lord saying, forgive us for this. It's, he wants to go in, throwing him in. They throw him in the water and three things happen. The storm stops, they fear God, and then God sends a fish for Jonah. And it's in these three occurrences at the end of this movement of the story that we flip our perspective one final time from the sailors to Jonah and finally, as best we can, to God. As we see the mercy in the storm so clearly on display to Jonah, to the sailors, and to Nineveh. Let's break this down. First, we see mercy in the storm as it stops Jonah from running. Remember, God hurled the storm at the boat. The, boat was in, the, the storm was intended to keep Jonah from running. It is a severe mercy one that had come to Jonah after multiple opportunities had been given to him and provided for him to turn around from what he was doing and go and do what the Lord had told him. He could have turned around on his way to Joppa. He could have turned around before he found the boat, turned around before he paid the fare, turned around before the boat took off, but he doesn't. So what we see here is the present mercy of God on display towards Jonah by stopping him from getting to Tarshish because the worst thing that could have happened to Jonah would have been that he got away with it. The worst thing that could have happened to Jonah 
would have been that if he actually made it away from God. His disobedience in this moment and running from God would have had only one result at the end of his life. Destruction. The present debilitation he felt from his disobedience would have grown into destroying Jonah and ultimately eternally separating him from God. It may look like the storm is the wrath of God, but the true wrath of God toward Jonah in the present would have been if God had let him get exactly what he wanted. The least kind, most wrathful thing God could have done would have been to let Jonah keep running away. Please hear me. Had God allowed Jonah to run, had Jonah spent his life in disobedience and destruction and in separation from God, it, it, it only would have made sense that at the end of his life he would have also met separation from God. And it would have been just of God to do so. He would be allowing Jonah to experience in eternity what Jonah so desperately desired in his humanity. Separation now, separation forever. God and his mercy stops Jonah from getting away from it. God stops Jonah from getting what he wants. God stops Jonah from running from him. It's the mercy of God on display to keep what would have ended in judgment and destruction from occurring in Jonah's life. We see our question from earlier answered right here. Will God show mercy to the person that is actively running away from him? The answer is yes. And sometimes he may send a storm to Please, doctors, do not hear what I am not saying. I absolutely am not saying that every storm in our life, every negative set of circumstances, every suffering we face is God saying that we've been disobedient. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that sometimes in our disobedience, the mercy of God comes in a storm that stops us in our tracks, makes our lives a little more lean, and reminds us of who he actually is. It is a severe mercy of God, but a mercy nonetheless to keep us from continuing in a path that would lead us to our destruction. Sometimes it does seem as if God cares enough to get our attention when we are deafened by our disobedience in ways that may seem severe, but are actually merciful. This is mercy in the storm. God stops Jonah. And then, in his mercy, for the sailors is seen when God stops the storm. See, when God stops the storm, it's the people who are affected by the consequence of Jonah's disobedience that actually acknowledge and worship God. Their experience, it's recorded, is that they fear God. I've said this before, it's worth saying again. The fear of God is a peculiar fear. It is not quite the same as being afraid. It's not quite the same as simply being scared of God. I think there's portions of that within it. It's more like being completely overwhelmed. Struck with awe, slack-jawed by the holiness and magnitude and severe uniqueness of Jehovah. You see his power and you are stunned. You feel stuck right where you are because you fear what you've experienced, but you also fear being anywhere else. When you fear, when you see who God is as the almighty God, not simply of the land, sea, and, and, and sky, but of the universe, stars, cosmos, and everything in between. When you have that moment when you feel like it's just you in an ocean surrounded by blue this way, blue that way, blue in front, blue behind, a, a surface above you can't get to, and depths below you can't fathom. When you feel so surrounded by that that you're like, I don't even know what to do. I feel so small and yet somehow also feel so significant, small because of how holy he is and it's the most seen and significant person in the world because he would choose to save you, to hold you, to care for you, to meet you, and in this case, to save the sailors from the storm. 
they, fear, uh, they feel a fear in that moment because they're like, what? they watch the body go over, they see a fish come and get it, and then the storm stops. And they are in awe. They are shocked. They are overwhelmed. This fear they experience. The fear that we experience in a moment or a series of moments where you understand who he is, where you understand what he's like, and you are overwhelmed. They stare at a sea that was once about to kill them and is instantly stilled. And they think, oh, that's God. Okay. These are little deities. That's adorable. All these other little things I give my life to, myself to, that's cute. That's God. Cool. <laughs> Please don't miss what they Look at what they do in the text. The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Before their sacrifice was to whoever would listen, the Elohim, and now it is laser-focused. Who else would I even consider worshiping, offering sacrifice to, fearing, following, make a vow to, praying to, other than the Lord, other than Jehovah? I just, I wonder if you've ever had a moment where you've been so struck by the magnitude of God, where you felt small and shockingly significant all at once. A moment where you, like the sailors, saw God for how he really is. And a moment like that will change you forever. There is no return from a moment like that. It would be one of the most merciful things God could do to give you a revelation of himself that brought you to your knees. That humbled the most prideful man, that floored the most prideful woman, that shattered whatever controllable, comprehensible picture of God that you might have or might have grown comfortable with or might have grown familiar with. For him to break into your reality and to remind you of who he actually is. Tim Keller recounts a moment like this where he saw it happen in front of him in his book, Prodigal God. He's talking with a woman about grace and the gospel and mercy and her articulation of this idea of how merciful uh, God has actually created the sense of fear inside of her. And Keller goes on to write this. He said, I asked her what was so fearful about unmerited free grace and mercy. And she replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I'd be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have gone and done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it really is true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost and through his mercy, then there is nothing that he cannot ask of me. That is an understanding of mercy that moves us into a life of obedience that is not compulsory. It's not just paying the fare or whatever. It's a life of obedience to God that is compelled by who he is. Mercy that overwhelms us in a way that moves us into worshipful obedience. I have been praying for myself in this. And docs, I've been praying for us in this. That God would continue, or for some of us the first time, give an overwhelming revelation of who he really truly is, of his mercy that would move us and would continue to move us into worshipful obedience that it would flip or shatter the familiar casual aspect or picture we have of him in our heads that in our lives we would walk with a mind fixed on his mercy and live in obedient worship of who he is with the way that we live and move and have our being. That even in worship we wouldn't simply just stand here in a room and stare at a screen as if we're enduring karaoke on a bar on a Wednesday 
day, but we'd actually fix our eyes on the God who still sees and sends storms and loves us enough that he'd send his very son to die for us on a cross and it's powerful enough to rise him up from the grave three days later so that anyone who would come and trust in him as Lord and Savior could receive mercy and assurance of eternal life with God forever. The seas stop and the sailors stop as well. They stop their pagan practices. They stop offering their lives to anything other than Jehovah, anything other than God. They stop what they were doing before. They see him for who he is, and they stop going in the direction they were going and start going in a different one. To stop going in one direction and start going in a different one, there's a word for that in the Bible. It's called repentance. They repent. They literally turn around as they see and believe in this God. Why? Because they understood who God was. When you see who God is, when you see Jesus, when you see his mercy, the only response is to do the exact same thing, to repent and to believe. A life marked by repentance and belief. This is the mercy of God stopping the storm for the sailors. Finally, we see the mercy of God in him sending the fish to swallow Jonah. Rob talked about this extensively last week. I won't rehash it, but I will say this. The fish is certainly salvation for Jonah, but it is also salvation for Nineveh. If Jonah jumps in and dies, that's the end of the book. So God sends a fish because he has an intention for that plan, for that city, sorry, and its inhabitants, and it is for them to know his mercy So he sends a fish to save a prophet. I wonder, I wonder if you've ever thought about all of the things that needed to take place for you to be in a spot where you heard the gospel. Or for you to even be like, I wonder if you've ever thought about all the things that needed to happen for you to be, maybe even today in this room, all the things that needed to happen for you in that one moment, maybe weeks ago, maybe years ago, where you heard who Jesus was and you trusted him and believed in him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe it wasn't a prophet in the mouth of a fish. If it was, come talk to me, I guess. Um, but have you thought about everything that went into that moment of you hearing the gospel? For me, it wasn't a prophet in the mouth of a fish, but it was DJ moving to Florida from North Carolina into an apartment off Bloomingdale and Kings across the street from me, sitting next to me in econ class, sitting next to me on the bus and inviting me to church. It wasn't a prophet in the mouth of a fish, but it was Alan Hawes hearing the gospel when he was a teenager, becoming a youth pastor later in life, preparing a message for Wednesday in March of 2010, and me being there to get to hear it. It wasn't a prophet in the mouth of a fish, but it was Romulo, Rachel, Ethan, Jill, Tim, and Krista, my first connection group, not just welcoming me, but actually helping to answer my questions, for them actually to have their own set of stories going on that actually led to the point where they were not only following Jesus, but mature enough to help me follow Jesus as well and answer the questions that I had. It wasn't the prophet in the mouth of a fish, but it was Rom inviting me to a leaders conference in Miami before I was even a Christian. Like it was just him being like, just come along, come be with me. And it was me reading John chapter 10 that morning and seeing verse 28 where Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will ever take them from my hand. And it clicking for me that day, that's who you are. That's who Jesus is. That's what you've done. I'm yours and you're mine because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and through the 
the empty tomb. So you've given me eternal life, and because of that, I'll never perish. And even greater than that, no one can take you from me from your hand. This is incredible. This is amazing. This is the gospel. This was my story. It was not a prophet in the mouth of a fish, but I do thank God for what he orchestrated and appointed so I could hear the gospel. I, in that moment, was Nineveh. Have you considered the intricacies of your story? All the things that God did to get the gospel to you. All the things that had to happen for you to be there. The mercy that he showed to you in that way. It's the mercy of God for the people in Nineveh, for God to appoint a fish to bring Jonah. Eventually to the shore of the city that God had sent him to so they may hear, repent, and believe. This is the mercy of God for a group of pagan sailors calling out to anyone but Jehovah who would eventually worship him. For a man who slept in a storm around him and within him. And for a people who ultimately wanted nothing to do with God, but God wanted them. This is the immensity of his mercy on display. It's actually just in his character. Exodus verses 34 verses 6, or chapter 34 verses 6 and 7. God begins his introduction of himself to Moses by saying, the Lord, the Lord is merciful. He says, a part of my name is mercy. That's his name. His name is his nature. His nature is his character, and his character is consistent. You see, earlier we said that one definition of mercy is withholding punishment that is due. Another complementary picture of mercy is giving benevolence and unearned kindness. God is perfectly merciful in withholding punishment and giving benevolence to those who come to him. He is incredibly merciful. And as I read this week, I was so drawn to verse 6 in this passage. So I'm going to say this one last thing. Lead us through into communion and then I'm just going to take my seat. Look at verse 6 one more time. This is the captain speaking to Jonah. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is wild to me. The best and most that the captain could imagine a God doing was giving a thought. The, the most he felt like he could ask for and the most he felt like he could receive, the most he felt like a God could actually give him was a thought. When in reality, Doxa, through Christ, God has not simply given us a thought. He has given us incredibly mind-bending, overwhelming benevolence because he has given us himself. He has given us a magnificent magnitude of mercy by sending Christ, his son, born of a virgin to live the perfect sinless life that we were all made for, but none of us could ever live because of our sin apart from Christ. He lived the life that we couldn't. He stilled seas and he spoke to storms and he died the death that we deserve for our sin to be our perfect and necessary sacrifice. He calms the storm of sin once and for all that where all that waited for us in our disobedience and sin is destruction and death. He takes destruction and death on himself, dies and and rises again three days later into victorious and glorious life, having defeated sin, death, and the grave on our behalf. So now anyone who would put their trust in him as Lord and Savior can experience the mercy of God through Christ. It's not only that we don't receive punishment we deserve for our sin, but we receive the benevolence of his beauty that he gives us more than we deserve by assuring us of eternal life through his finished work through the cross and the empty tomb. This is the merciful 
wonderful gospel. Christ died and rose again so that all who trust in him may be saved by his mercy. This is what we remember when we take communion. Jenna, you can go ahead and come on up. When we take communion, we remember the mercy of the gospel, the the beauty of the cross and the empty tomb, the severity of the cross. We take the bread, his body broken for us. We take the cup, the wine, the juice, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. There is a severity that he experienced so that we might experience mercy. We don't rush into this. We stop. We remember the gospel. We examine our lives and we repent of our sin. And then we take and eat the bread to remember his body was broken so that ours might not be. And we drink the cup to remember our need for his shed blood for us. That his blood was shed to be the only forgiveness that we could ever possibly put our hope in to have a place with the Father forever. He is our forgiveness. His body broken, his blood shed. We drink the cup to remember our need for that. And our response partaking in communion is to worship him, not only with the people around us, that he's joined together with us through that shed blood, but actually to go through those doors in response, in remembrance of communion, and to live a life of worshipful obedience to the one who died on a cross and rose again for us, whose body was broken and blood was shed so that we might walk out with an assurance of forgiveness and an assurance of eternal life if we, like the sailors, would see him repent of our sin trust in him in a moment I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to invite you to just sit where you are to remember the gospel that saved you how you needed his body to be broken for you his blood to be shed for your sin if you're not a Christian I would just invite you I'm glad you're here and I honor that you're here you have two responses in this moment as we enter into communion First, you can just simply sit back and stay where you are as others go to the table because it doesn't make any sense for you to remember the body broken and the bloodshed of Jesus if you've not trusted in him as your Lord and Savior. That's, we're not withholding anything from you. You're actually withholding it from yourself. We just ask you to sit back. It's okay. Unless you would like to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior today then if you look at him for who he is if you decided to follow jesus and trust him as your lord and savior you will be welcomed to the table to take communion for the first time and remember what he did to rescue you from your sin his body broken for you his blood shed for you so that you might not be far off might not be cast off might not be separated for your sin, so that your disobedience can be forgiven, your sin can be forgiven. You actually come to him, know him as your Lord and Savior. You can remember the mercy that was shown for you on the cross and through the empty tomb as you take the bread and wine from the table. You can remember that he has shown you mercy. I ask you to sit there and take a moment to close your eyes and bow your heads. And just for focus and concentration, I'm going to pray for us. I want to invite you to sit. And Christian to examine your life, see the, the thorough line of mercy that he's shown to you, 
but also to see the areas in your life where you say, oh, I need to repent of that. I need to turn from that. I've been tolerating that. To examine your life before you come to the table and then remember the mercy that was shown through his body and his blood. So Father, um, as we remember, as we look back and we see the cross, would you remind us again of the mercy of Jesus? Would you remind us of the severity of the cross? of what had to be done for us to be forgiven of our sin. And in the severity of the cross, would you remind us of the severity of your love for us that you sent Christ, who willingly chose to die for our sin, to take that punishment on himself so that your will would be done. And would you help us to respond accordingly, to respond with worshipful obedience, even now, even today, Father, would you give a revelation of yourself to help us to see you rightly for who you are? Maybe even some of our repentance this morning would be a familiarity or sense of control or comfort that we feel just in relation to, to you and thinking about who you are. It actually ignores the reality of your magnitude, your, your size, your scope, you, how big you are. God, help us to see you rightly. Jesus, would you please meet us here? Would you help us? It's in your name.